You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, I want to talk with you this evening about freedom. The Bible says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. But what is freedom? A few years ago, I was on a road trip. I was driving and listening to music, and Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata came on. Have you ever been totally won over by a piece of music, just completely absorbed? Um, this happened to me. I was listening to this music, and it felt like the, 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 the piano, the song, was touching every part of my soul. The, the despair, the hope, the joy, the sorrow, all of it was just kind of laid bare there. And the tears were streaming down my face. Kids sitting in the back seat, they've seen Dad cry before when he's driving, but never without a police officer directly uh, behind him. But I just thought... You know, who could have the genius to conceive this, this piece of music, the Moonlight Sonata? Who is this Beethoven guy that he could even imagine? And I, that's a lot of freedom to be able to make music like that. Now, I have a piano in my living room, and I have the freedom, I suppose, to sit down there anytime I want to make music. But I, I just don't really have that kind of freedom, really, not Beethoven's. And I kind of feel the same way when I read the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus. I don't know if that ever feels the same to you. You read the Sermon on the Mount and you go, oh my gosh, this is so spectacularly beautiful. Uh, who could even think of a world that would work this way? I mean, I think if the world would follow the Sermon on the Mount for just one day, all of our problems would be solved. I mean, I honestly believe that. Just one day is all it would take, the Sermon on the Mount. And yet... I, I got a Bible in my house, but I, I don't know how to live that way. I don't feel like I have the freedom to do that. And so I'm so glad that the followers of Jesus Christ uh, left us some writings in which they taught us how it is that a regular person can find the beauty and the freedom of Jesus Christ showing up in our lives. And that's what we're talking about when we look at this freedom in Christ series. One of these believers is uh, Paul. He was originally the great Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, a great teacher in Judaism. But he met Jesus, as you know, on the road to Damascus. And Jesus turned his life around. And he writes a letter to a group of people who live in what's today modern-day Turkey. Uh, Then it was called Galatia. And he writes to them about freedom. In fact, chapter 5 is where his argument really climaxes. He talks about how it is that a regular person like me or you can have, can live with the kind of freedom that Jesus lived with and, and, and that beauty. So that's what we're going to be studying, Galatians 5, over the next several weeks this summer. Really important stuff. I look forward to joining you in this. I'm so glad that you're here tonight for the beginning of this. So let's pull out our Bibles and turn to Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. You find that on page 948 of the Pew Bible. And tonight, uh, as always, I would love for you to hold your Bible open because I'm going to flip with you to a couple different passages. So uh, if you're able, let's stand and read God's Word aloud together, but uh, we'll hold on to our Bibles and, and do some study together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading His Holy Word from Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. 
Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the entire law. You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Now let's look again at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, For freedom, for freedom, Christ has set you free. And then notice the very next, he, right, right, uh, he follows this up with a, a warning. He says, stand firm, therefore. Stand firm and do not be uh, sub, to submit again to a yoke of slavery. This language, standing firm, is almost a military injunction. Stand your ground. Stand firm. See, he understands that freedom is really easy to take for granted, and it's even easier to lose. So we have to be vigilant. We have to be watchful. We have to be protective of our freedom. You have it. Christ has set you free. You know, he died on the cross to forgive you for your sins and give you everlasting life. You actually have freedom. But the question is, do you choose to live with freedom? Do you live with the freedom that you've been given every single day? And I want to say to you, just right off the bat, if your experience in the past or your experience today of the Christian life is one that doesn't have freedom in it, then you're doing something wrong. Because you've been set free for freedom. So Paul, he gets pretty exercised, actually, in this letter. He uses the strongest language that he uses in any of the letters here in Galatians because he's concerned that Christians, he's not talking about non-Christians, Christians are not living with the freedom that is there. Now flip back to Galatians chapter 1. Uh, let me just show you that this is the central theme of the whole book. If you look at verse 6, here's his concern. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They haven't been standing firm. They have deserted the one. They turned to a different gospel, uh, which isn't good news at all. It's not really a gospel. Uh, if you ask your neighbors, your friends, your classmates, what comes to mind when you think of the word Christianity? Do you think of good news? Is that our reputation in the world, good news or bad news? See, Paul says the problem is you've lost track of the good news to which you've been called. Now, if you want to know what the good news is, uh, thankfully, Paul gives us a very concise summary of the gospel in verse 4. Uh, he just opens his letter with a statement of the gospel because they've forgotten it. So he says here, uh, you see, he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of verse 3. And he says, who, here's the gospel, gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age. He's a freedom fighter. Jesus has given himself for your sins and for mine to set us free from this present evil age. This is the gospel. So tonight, in the next few minutes, I'd like to turn over this concept of the gospel as we look back here at Galatians 5, because Paul uh, invites the Galatians to three experiences of the gospel that may not be immediately clear to you. And uh, I would call them the gospel of unity. We'll look at that first. And then the gospel of approval. And then finally, the gospel of love. 
Now, I, I need to translate some of this for you because as you read that, you might have thought, oh, there's a lot about circumcision in here. And, I, you know, as I woke up this morning, I think oh, my greatest temptation is probably not to get circumcised this day, you know. <laughs> so we have to do a little bit of cultural translation. So let's start with the gospel of unity. And here the point is that Jesus frees you for freedom in relationship. Unity. Union. Oneness. This is part of the freedom that we're to experience. Now, look, look at verse 5, uh, verse 6, actually, of chapter 5. You'll see the divisions. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Now, it's hard for us to see this, but at that time, that represented two groups within the church, circumcision or uncircumcision. And it wasn't just Jews and non-Jews. Jews were circumcised. They could be referred to as the circumcision. That was a way of think, speaking of Jewish people in the first century. Because what's happening in Galatia is people who are Gentiles, which is the word they use for non-Jew, the non-Jews in Galatia were beginning to get circumcised. They were beginning to take the mark of the Jewish covenant upon themselves. And they were essentially building these factions. How does this happen? Well, in chapter 2, we would have read that there was a group of people from James, Paul says, from James. They came from the church in Jerusalem, where James was leading. Now, James isn't responsible for these people because they have some pretty unhelpful ideas. And when they arrive, they say, you know, it's good to be a... Christian, And of course, of course, of course, Jesus saves us by grace. That's how you get started in the Christian life. But if you want to be a real Christian, if you want to be an uber Christian, a great and famous Christian, then you want the whole works. You know, you don't want just the basic package. You want the deluxe package. And, and that comes with all the teachings of the law, the 613 laws that the uh, rabbis of, of Jesus' day claim. You've got to do all of them, the kosher laws, circumcision, everything. Paul calls this the circumcision faction, these people. Which I think would be a great name for a soccer team, don't you think? Very intimidated. This circumcision. Some translations call it the circumcision party, which doesn't sound like much of a party at all to me. Um, but apparently the guys are saying, okay, I, wanna, I want the whole deal, so I'm, I'm going to get circumcised as an adult. And what this does is this creates these divisions in the church, and Paul goes, oh my gosh, this is the church. Paul founded this church. And at one point, his vision for the church is that this be, as he says in chapter 3, verse 28, there'd be no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male or female. You should all be one because you are one in Christ. See, that's freedom, to be one. Relational freedom. Now, we have divisions uh, today in our society, as you know, and we have them in the church. Um, Someone went to a church not long ago, and they gave him a bulletin, and the elders had printed at the top uh, the sort of mission of the church. And they made it clear that these elders thought in this church there were really two groups of people. There was a group of people of which Jesus made no demands whatsoever. These were the hurting. These were the vulnerable. These were the lost. These were the weak and the poor. And for you, there's no demands here in this congregation, they were saying. But then there's another group, and those were, they call them the disciples. And these are the people of whom we demand everything. And uh, these are the people who uh, give their lives to Jesus Christ. And what they didn't realize implicitly in, in framing their church mission this way is that they had dichotomized the congregation as though there were some of us that were wounded and hurting and had needs, and then there were others of us who were the opposite of that, sort of heroic, God-squad kind of Christians. And that's bad theology. 
Because there's really one group of people, and they're the same. Disciples who follow Jesus and hear all of his demands are also the same people. We are the same ones who have wounds and hurts and brokenness and very much need grace and forgiveness. It's one church. When I think about what divides a church, we're divided by morality, ethnicity, controversy. Just like that bulletin, we think, well, there must be some really real Christians in this church. You know, you go to your small group and someone prays with such articulation. It's like they've got a stained glass voice and the theology just rolls off the trip of their tongue. Or, or you meet another person who, you know, they got a zipper on their Bible and they seem to know every part, how to find everything in the New Testament. And it's impressive. Or they're serving as an activist in the community or they're teaching in our Sunday school class. And you go, man, there's great Christians who here at UPC, but not me. Don't think that way. We're not divided by morality. This is a place where the, the ground, the foot of the cross is level. There's just one experience of being a Christian with, with the brokenness and the greatness of Jesus Christ in us. We shouldn't be divided by ethnicity either. But you've heard it said, Martin Luther King repeated this, that the uh, 11 o'clock hour is the most segregated hour in America. And sadly, that still seems to be true today. Uh, but when Jesus sees the church in 21st century America. He doesn't see the white church, as we call it sometimes, or the black church or the Korean church. He sees the church. He sees his church. He sees one church. That's, a, that's his vision for us, to be unified. That's freedom for us. Um, by the way, uh, our brothers and sisters of Christ here in Seattle are gathering on Tuesday night. I want to give you an invitation down at First AME. We're going to have a, a march for solidarity with the, our brothers and sisters in Charleston who suffered this tragedy. If you want to be a part of that, join your leaders down there. 5 p.m. it starts down at First AME to reflect some of this unity. And then controversy. I mean, Christians are famous for arguing over what color the curtains should be, or the carpet should be, everything from our personal preferences around music uh, to our politics. And I love it that that's not an issue for us here at UPC. As I say, you know, we could all go out and vote and we cancel each other out, uh, left and right and everything in between. And that's great because our unity here has to do with Jesus. So the only thing that counts, Paul says, verse 6, is faith working through love. It doesn't matter whether you're circumcised, not circumcised, or whether you identify with this group or that group or this faction or that faction, because we're really one. The only thing that matters or that counts is faith working through love. That's the gospel of unity, freedom in relationship. Jesus does that. The second aspect of the gospel is approval, the gospel of approval. Here the point is that Jesus frees us to be completely accepted just the way we are, just who we are. Let's look again at the Bible. Back at verse 5, we see Paul writing, For through the Spirit, by faith, and that's a key word, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, what does he mean by the hope of righteousness? Hope, in the Bible, doesn't mean wish like we use it. It means confident expectation. I'm waiting with confident expectation for righteousness. We think that what that means in this context is that we're waiting for our identity untainted by sin because we believe in Jesus that he has forgiven us of our sins and lived the life that we could never live on our behalf today we wait for our real selves, our righteous selves to appear as he's transforming us more and more into his image this has caused us to think a little bit about what is freedom really? what is freedom? You and I live in a culture that tells us freedom is the ability 
to choose whatever you want at any point in time. But that's not the Bible's definition of freedom. You can't choose to go uh, north to San Francisco, so we're not all really free by that definition. No, um, Tagore, the Bengali writer, poet, he talks about the freedom of a violin string. If you fix the violin string on the violin only at one end, it, it's free to move in any direction. But it's only as you fix the violin string on both ends of the violin is it free to, to be what it was originally made to be, an instrument of beautiful music. So real freedom, biblical freedom, is the freedom, is the ability to become your real self, your real self. This is where approval comes in. This is why Paul gets so exercised about the fact that these Gentiles are taking on the mark of the Jewish covenant. Because it means that they can't see themselves yet as accepted as who they are. They look over at the Gentiles, they go, oh, God gave them a special mark. And God did to mark them out as God's approved people. It was a sign of their acceptance by God's grace. And when a Gentile looks over that and says, the only way I guess I could be approved is to kind of pretend to be a Jew or to look like a Jew or to perform in the way that the Jews were asked to perform. It basically, what they're saying is, I can't see myself as accepted. I can't hear God's approval in my life just the way I am. And this is a problem. These are people then who are not waiting for the righteousness that comes by faith. You don't have to become somebody else in order to be accepted. I think of how often I compare myself to others, or I wish I were more like them every day. And I ask myself, what are the marks of approval in our culture? You know, what does the world tell us that you have to have in order to prove that you've made it, to prove it to the world or to prove it to yourself? You know, what kind of clothes do you have to wear? What kind of car do you have to drive? What neighbor do you have to live in? What, how much money do you have to have in your bank account to be able to really say, I've been approved in the world today? Well, we all need approval, uh, and we seek it from parents and peers, from employers. We seek awards and recognition for who we are, and there's nothing wrong with all of that. But when we turn any of those sources of approval, human approval, into ultimate sources of approval, then we're in trouble. We're not free. We're enslaved to whatever that is. I love the Apostle Paul's own example of this in his life. In Philippians chapter 3, he tells his readers that within the Jewish culture, he had constantly been pursuing approval. In fact, he had gained a lot of, uh, of the marks of approval. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Yep, check. I was a member of the people of Israel. Check. A tribe of Benjamin. Ooh, check. I was a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Check. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Check, check, check. But when I met Jesus, I realized I didn't need any of that to be approved. Because God approves us in Jesus. So he says in Philippians 3, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. I don't perform. I don't pretend. I don't generate my own righteousness uh, that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith, waiting uh, with confident expectation for a righteousness that's just a gift that comes by grace. So, 
Paul says the only thing that counts is faith working through love. So gospel of unity, gospel of, of approval. Finally, let's look at the gospel of love. Here we see that Jesus, our freedom fighter, sets us free for a new motivation. Not fear, but love. And, and not just any kind of love, but a sort of selfless love. Look at uh, verses 13 through 15, 14. Here's Paul sums up the argument he's made so far. And he shows its implications. He says, For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. This is not self-centeredness. But through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you really loved, you wouldn't need the law. You, you can't really regulate. You know, by the way, uh, when we have something happening here, sometimes people say, oh, we need a policy about this or that. And I always say, policies are for when relationship breaks down. Rules are for when relationship breaks down. So in the moment that God has restored relationship between you and him and Jesus Christ, you don't really need the rules anymore because you're motivated now by love, real love. Jeffrey Brown is a minor league baseball player. He played for the Visalia Oaks back in the day. And if you saw the movie Moneyball, there's a great scene in there where Billy Bean shows a little clip of Jeffrey Brown to Peter Brand. And Billy Bean shows this moment when Jeffrey Brown, who's overweight and uh, he, he's a good to hit her, but he never runs past first base because he's just not that fast. So he's terrified to ever turn that corner. But on this day, he connects with a fastball, sends it right out to center field, and he hustles up that first base line. And when he gets to the first base, he turns left. Never does that, but this day he did. He starts to run towards second. But he gets a few paces out, he turns around, he's terrified, and he jumps back to first base and grabs the, the, the base like it's a security blanket. The crowds in the stands are laughing at him. Why? Not because he's afraid, but because what he doesn't know is he has hit the ball 60 feet over the fence. It's a home run. Now, it's not that he has to round the bases, but he gets to, and all the fear is gone. Do you see, that's what Paul's saying. It's, it's true of you and me. Jesus has hit your ball out of the park. It's a home run. The game is over. The victory has been accomplished. Now the bags are there for you to dance around and to celebrate what Jesus has done. You don't have to, but you get to. This is a new motivation. People who are motivated by the law are fundamentally insecure. I don't know. Will I ever be good enough? I don't know. And fear is the motivation. But when you realize you've been fully approved that you've been embraced by God's perfect, unconditional love, then it bounces out of your life in joyful, joyful obedience and uh, unconditional love. Illustration of this Tim Keller uses, he talks about uh, husbands and wives. Let's see, if you're married tonight, guys, and your wife, uh, when you get home, says, looks in your eyes and says, Honey, why do you love me? Well, you might say, because, uh, I don't know, you're a good tennis player and I've always found you physically attractive and you've got a great career and I, you know, work very hard on it and I love the income that you bring in and it really helps pay the bills. Just, you know, it, those all might be true statements, but it's going downhill very, very, very fast. Okay. Good thing you came to church tonight. Um, it might be okay to start a relationship that way. I like the way you meet my needs, but over time, if you're still there, what you're doing is basically using the other person. That's not really loving them, that's using them. 
How often do we relate to God that way? Well, God, I'll relate to you if you meet my needs, answer my prayers, and so forth. You're just using God. This is the fear-based motivation. This is the law. Um, what we really want to do is get to the place in our marriages and our relationships where we can go, I don't know, I, you know, I do enjoy playing tennis with you, but what I love about you is just you. I, I don't know, I just love who you are. I love your smile. I love the way you laugh. I love the way you cry. I just love the way you move in the, in the world. And, uh, and it's not just that you meet my needs. In fact, I, I love you so much, I want to meet your needs, you see. That's a response of love. That's a selfless motivation. He's talking here about self-indulgence. No, we don't use our freedom to please ourselves. We use our freedom to please other people because it's a reaction to God's love. I got an email from one of you last week, and thank you for giving your permission so that I could read it. And I want to read some of the emails. This is a woman who's just recently given her faith to Jesus Christ and become one of his believers. And I read it to you not only because you see what Jesus does in a person's life when we do that, but also she talks about her desires shifting. Listen to this. She says, I wasn't always seeking God, but he was always seeking me. It became apparent to me that God wanted me to dance to his music. But all I wanted most of my life was to find a way to dance to my own and drown him out. My heart has been deceiving me. I can see now how God has been seeking me in my life, even in the other religions I practiced. Then she talks about this evening recently. I could no longer hold back the feeling that God was working in my heart and that I actually believed that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. I realized that I had a void in my life and that I was filling with finite idols. I realized the only thing that could fill that void was God. That night I prayed to God for the first time with all my heart, asking him to forgive my sins and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Since then, God continues to work both my life and my husband's, drawing us closer and closer through his Holy Spirit. I've been understanding what it means to know God's voice, and I've been experiencing changing my desires. I have to humble myself to hear him. He's been convicting me of sins in my life in a loving way, and I've been listening to his humble voice. Notice what you're not hearing. Oh, now that I'm a follower of Jesus, I've got this heavy burden on my life. I've got to change everything. Oh, it's awful. She's going, no. He so gently surfaces areas in my life uh, of unhealth. And I'm so eager now to give those areas over to him and to see him work because I love him. Helmut Atilike writes, Our love for God is kindled only as God bears his heart to us, thereby himself becoming an object that can be loved. God opens his heart so he becomes an object then and only then that can be loved. It is this act of love, his love, that makes mine come alive as a fount of spontaneous action. Something that can do its own loving. Love need not, love cannot be initiated by legal injunction. I command you to love me. On the contrary, my love is a matter of response. Only when I myself am loved do I feel compelled to love in return. I react in freedom to the divine love, which has first been bestowed upon me, and this is the beginning of my new existence. People get really worried when you talk about freedom, and I'm sure they were in Galatia as they received this letter, because they're going, well, then who would do anything good? We just have anarchy. And Paul says, oh, then you don't understand how much God loves you. Yeah, there's still the law. If you really love God, you read the law, you'll dog ear its pages, because it reveals God's heart, but you know you're not under it. You'll never be condemned by it, and you don't have to perform for it. This is real freedom. Freedom of a new motivation. Remember, Paul says, the only thing that counts is faith 
working through love. Well, Abraham Lincoln said there needs to be a rebirth of freedom in every generation. And I think this is our moment. This summer, let it be a a summer of great freedom for you and for me. I want to close by reading a a little bit written by a man named Ray Ortland, And I've adapted a, a little bit. But let me close with these words. Once we were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his way, but he did not understand our weaknesses. He came home every evening and asked, so... How was your day? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? So many demands and expectations. And hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy him. We forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings. And the worst of it was he was always right. But his remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. We didn't because we couldn't. Then Mr. Law died, and we remarried, this time to Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, comes home every evening, and the house is a mess. The children are being naughty. Dinner is burning on the stove, and we have even had other men in the house during the day. Still, he sweeps us into his arms and says, I love you. I chose you. I died for you. I will never leave or forsake you. And our hearts melt. We don't understand such love. We expect him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us, but he treats us so well. We're so glad to belong to him now and forever, and we long to be fully pleasing to him. Tomorrow, we will make this place beautiful. Being married to Mr. Law never changed us, but being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deep within, and it shows. Would you join me in prayer? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, when Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism, he and everybody else heard your affirmation. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Thank you for calling us to the same waters of baptism so that you might cleanse us free from sin and release us from the power of death. Now tonight we pray that each of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, could hear that same insistent affirmation in our lives. That we are truly your beloved. With us, you are well pleased. Empower us through your Holy Spirit to receive the full measure of your love and so to find a new way of responding, a new way of living, a new existence, one that's driven by selfless love, just as you've loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.